Welcome to Unboxy World, the podcast where philosophy meets tech. In each episode, we're connecting the dots between philosophy, technology, society, science, and progressive thought. And together with brilliant minds across the world who dare to challenge the way we think and live in today's society, we are unboxing our minds one episode at a time. I am Ria Salting. I am a tech professional during the day and a philosopher at night. And if you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest unboxed episode. So let's get started. Let's unbox ourselves. Welcome back to Unboxy World. What if we could get the best out of ancient direct democracy and modern delegative democracy, where you can still vote uh, in each election for your representatives, but you can override their votes whenever you want to, where you can outsource your vote to your mother, your neighbor, or any expert that you think has good opinions. This would all be possible in a liquid democracy system. You could then delegate your vote to whomever you believe will best represent your vote in a certain topic. So for example, when it comes to healthcare, you might want to delegate your vote to your grandma who happens to be a doctor. When it comes to anything related to the labor market, you might want to delegate your vote to a colleague who is very well-read into the topic and that you typically agree with. But when it comes to anything related to the schooling system, you want to keep the vote to yourself as you're very passionate about the subject. This would all be possible in a liquid democracy system where you could then delegate your vote to whomever you like at any point in time, but you can still override it and take control of it yourself. This is a very fascinating subject uh, that we'll dig in today. Uh, Today we're interviewing David Ernst, who is the CEO of Secure Internet Voting, Liquid Democracy Technologies, and Secure ID. And this has been a super fascinating, interesting interview today. And today you will learn what liquid democracy is, the role of blockchain in a liquid democracy voting system, how liquid democracy could change the political landscape, and how the role of politicians could change in a liquid democracy system. So let's get started. Uh, Welcome back to the show. So welcome, David Ernst, the CEO and founder of Liquid Democracy Technologies. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for joining. It's um, uh, it's really cool what you're doing. Um, so I was, I was looking for someone who could talk about this, and I found you. So that was, I was really happy about that. And then turns out that you are running a podcast yourself as well. <laughs> yeah, it's been a little while since we published an episode because our producer went off to law school. But hopefully uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you are um. St- uh, you're building a platform to enable a liquid democracy um, system. Um, so do you want to just briefly, first off, explain to listeners what a liquid democracy is? Sure thing. Yeah. So liquid democracy is one of the labels that people put on this concept. Um, it has other names. The first name for it was actually delegative democracy. Some people refer to it as peer-to-peer democracy. Some people call it hybrid democracy. I've actually come to, in my own mind, I think of it as either 21st century democracy, like information Hmm. age democracy, or decentralized representative democracy. So there's a lot of names for the same concept. But the important thing is that it's often introduced as um, there's this tension a lot of people see between what we think of now as representative democracy and direct democracy. And the the tension there is that the direct democracy gives everybody a voice, but a lot of people aren't necessarily all that informed on specific issues. They're not necessarily experts on the issue. And so on the the representative side, we have empowered experts, full-time professionals to look into issues. 
And so there's this big debate that's been going on for thousands of years, really, but it's especially heated up in the last few years about are the people who are right or are the experts who are right? Who should we trust? Mm -hmm. Which one is the right answer? And I see that answer. And a lot of people see that debate as sort of like a false dichotomy. It's like a false dilemma. Why are we being forced to pick between the people and the experts and the elite? Mm -hmm. That's That seems like a strange way to do it. And that's sort of where this hybrid model comes in. The basic idea is that you still get representatives. You as an individual still have representatives that can vote on your behalf. You can have, it's, it's inclusive of both models. You can have exactly what you have right now. You have your representative go off to the Capitol and vote on your behalf. And it's a lot more powerful because you get to personally pick your own representative. So it's not just one representative that gets elected for tens of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people or even millions of people in the case of the U.S. It's you chose these are the people who I trust the most to represent me on these issues. So it's a much more personal choice. And on top of that, you can overrule them on individual issues. So if you have a really strong opinion on should we have this mass mandate or should we have this vaccine mandate or should we do this new tax policy or should X, Y or Z be a crime? The, the fundamental premise of consent of the governs means that you as a citizen get to weigh in on these issues. And so the way that works in practice is that you introduce this idea of voting power. And so every citizen has a voting power of one, just like in our normal representative democracy, we all get one person, one vote to elect our leaders. And as you name people as your representatives, as you delegate to them as your representatives, Anytime you don't weigh in on a specific policy, you, they get to cast your vote. Uh, whatever, however they vote gets added to their voting power. So it's like they're representing you on their behalf, sort of as like your proxy vote in like corporate governance. And so it's this really, it's this, it's this very simple mechanism of you can vote yourself anytime. And if you don't vote, your representatives gets to inherit your voting power. Just very, very simple little mechanism that can be added up together to create this really powerful system where we can all feel like we have a voice, everybody can be included, and we can still empower leaders. We absolutely still want leadership. We still want people to look deeply into the issues and figure out what's, what's the right answer on different issues. And our leaders, we can have actual accountability over our leaders. We don't have like this lesser of two evils, you know, the red team versus the blue team sort of stuff where we're like stuck between two kind of weak options or they're in office for years at a time. And a lot of times the other issue is that there might be some candidate running for office who is really good in a particular domain. Like they're really good when it comes to education issues or they're really good when it comes to social spending issues, but they're a little bit weaker when it comes to foreign policy issues. That's just not their area of expertise. That's a very normal human thing because all of us have different areas of interest and expertise. But our current system of representation sort of forces us to have, it expects our representatives to know every answer on every single topic. Mm -hmm. And once you start to get into this much more sophisticated representative system, you can say, this is who I really want to trust on technology issues. This is who I want to trust on science issues, this is who I want to trust on foreign policy issues or or specific healthcare policy or tax policy issues. So overall, it's, it's, a, it's a rethinking of the concept and ideals of representative democracy using the new powers that are available to us thanks to our always-on internet-connected mm -hmm. computer devices in our pocket. Yeah, it's... Um... It, it actually kind of sounds like the way I apply it to my own life. <laughs> like right. I have, you know, like I, I trust my, my grandparents who are doctors about whether I should take a medicine or not. I ask my, my, my IT colleagues what laptop I should buy. Um, exactly. I ask my friend who's interested in interior design, what couch should I buy? <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I, it's very similar like, like that, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, it's meant to be much more natural and much more humane. The structures we have now were the best things that people could come up with 300 years ago, 400 years ago, and an age before electricity, when you really had to ride away on a horse for a week to get to the capital. And so there were certain constraints of, of the information technology available to them at the time, 
But now we can make things that actually match the way we we already live and interact and trust people in the world Mm -hmm. and create a, a much closer trust relationship between citizen and representative. That's the other issue right now is so many people don't necessarily even know who the representatives are. The representatives yeah. certainly have no idea who they are. And so we see this massive crisis of trust brewing all over the democratic world, which is um, it's a dangerous thing because a lot of people are, are trying to exploit it in these very authoritarian anti-democratic ways. Yeah. So what is... um. Um, the, uh, so what are the implications then for a country if you like, and is it, um, do you see that any particular countries are better suited for started with starting with this? And yeah. And how would you yeah. start it even? <laughs> totally. It's such a big project. It's not, it's not going to happen overnight by any means. I mean, it's really, I, I, in my mind, I see it as one of the biggest shifts we're making in the way we organize socially in hundreds of years. I mean, going back to like the American and French revolutions where these ideas really, really um, took off. And so it's definitely not going to happen overnight. I think the implications, the hope, the goal, the design goal is that the implications are a, um, a much more trustworthy social fabric, social structure. People that work hard and do good things feel like the world makes sense and and supports them. People that try to exploit the community and and take advantage of things, you know, there's there's good consequences to that. Ideally, I I think there's some really good analysis to suggest that corruption, the ways in which some tiny little um, interests can pay a little bit of money and kind of skim money off of everybody else's pocket. There's some really good arguments about why that becomes drastically harder in this type of system. I think also we could be Mm. um, far less polarized in the like left versus right sort of way, which is a really, in my mind, it's it's a really weak model. It's really weird to assume that all the world's problems, of which there's millions of real problems, but let's say a thousand bigger problems, that all the world's problems come down to flipping a single switch of should the left-leaning side go into power, should the right-leaning... If we just elect the left-leaning people, then all our problems will be solved. We just elect the right-leaning people, then all our problems will be solved. Mm. I mean, it's it's so reductionist. It's kind of absurd if you stop and think about it. And so that whole sort of thing, I think, could get drastically better. It's like we're living in the era today in, in the TV world. They're used to, in America at least, I'm not exactly sure about in Sweden, but in America at least, there used to only be three major television channels. And they would have some program on. So you could flip on the TV at dinner time with your family and you had three options mm-hmm. and that's it for the entire country. And then we moved to this world of cable TV. Now you have a hundred options. We moved to satellite TV. Now you have a thousand options. And now we have YouTube and you have uncountable number of options and every single one you can play and pause and you're in control. Exactly. And so the quality has just gotten many orders of magnitude so much better. There's so many more niche channels that are niche types of content that some people are really into. I don't necessarily even know about them, mm-hmm. but I think the quality could get much higher. And to that extent, mm-hmm. what does that quality look like? Well, I mean, government is really about how do we address and solve our shared problems? I mean, that's what politics originally meant is the polis, the issues facing the city, the polis. And so um, I think our governments as a whole are, are doing an okay job in many ways, but in other ways, just completely overwhelmed by the ways in which our world has is changing. And, it, and unfortunately, or depending on how you look at it, it's excel- the change is accelerating. And like I have gotten to know, as I've been working on this stuff for the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of my city council members. I'm in San Francisco, California. And so my city council member... Um, single-handedly is expected to represent about 70,000 people, just my city council member. Mm. And they have a shoestring budget. They have a few volunteers that help work with them. And they're just inundated with issues going on all the time. Mm. And it takes a certain um, like weird combination of like sacrifice, but then also egoism. Cause you have to like say, Oh, I have all the problems for everyone to like put yourself in that role of public service and at the scale in which these people are dealing with these problems, again, I think is inhumane. It's just not reasonable for somebody to try to represent mm-hmm. tens of thousands of people at once. Mm-hmm. So I think all this stuff could get a lot better. 
that's your your first question about what what the implication looks. Does that all make sense? Yeah. And then is it, um, do you have any countries in particular that uh, expressed interest <laughs> and started? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, totally. Cool. Um, so the countries that are kind of in the lead, I would say, um, I'll, I'll give a few highlights. So the Netherlands has done a lot of experiments in this direction. Um, in particular, it's been, the experiments have been done within what's called the Pirate Party of the Hi. Netherlands. Because they originally started um, as the single issue party, specifically on uh, file sharing, like peer to promoting peer to peer file sharing. We and have so, those parties in Sweden too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the Pirate Bay was originally single issue, wasn't it? And so they got elected to office, and then they're like, "Okay, we know how we feel about this issue, but we don't know how we're supposed to feel about all these other issues." And so some people were like, hey, there's this model of this peer-to-peer democracy model. Why don't we use that? And so they built it out in Germany as well. They built it out. And so they've been experimenting. So internal party members can tell the elected members of parliament um, how they hope for them to vote. So there's been a bunch of progress there. Iceland's also done a lot of digital democracy stuff. Taiwan's done a lot of digital democracy stuff. There's been a ton of interest from Estonia as well. Um, America's... Where I am has had some moves in the right direction, but there's a lot of inertia and there's so much of the like red mm-hmm. versus blue tug of war that's hard to work here. But yeah, does that answer your yeah. question? Oh, Australia yeah, yeah. as well has had a number of really interesting things going well, on. That's cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, I mean, it's being actually tested. That's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there have been, so the, the technology that my team has built has been used by tens of thousands of people throughout America and all 50 states. We've passed a number of laws using it, actually, a number of bills at all different levels of government. Um, but it's still relatively small. And you're asking this question of like, what is the path to this thing? The, the impossible way to do it would be to say, we're going to rewrite the Constitution. We're going to rewrite the national. That's, that's not going to happen anytime soon for many obvious and good reasons. The really cool thing, though, that has been happening is people saying, I'm going to run for office in the existing representative system. And if I get elected, I will use this new model to control my votes in the new system. So I'm just going to be like a proxy. I'm just going to be like a a placeholder for this new system. And so when I'm running for office, you're not voting for me. You're voting for to try out this new upgraded representative system. I'm literally going to be a representative. And so that's sort of what we were pursuing, especially focused from 2017 and 18 and and 19 for the last few years. And so there've been a dozen or so candidates in the US that have run at all different levels of government. And I've done that and I, including I was one of them. Um, And so that's really powerful because it means that you can experiment with this stuff in a, in a binding way for one seat at a time and doesn't require any constitutional amendments, doesn't require convincing the entire country to adopt it, just one jurisdiction. It's a grassroots. Exactly, Mm -hmm. bottoms up. And it could become so easy that um, like like all you have to do is is sign up and say, yes, I'll be one of these people. And the the app will tell me how to vote. So we made this comic Mm -hmm. at one point where um, we have people imagining, imagine you're in the city, in the legislature and- uh, let's say there's 50 members of the of the legislature and 49 of them are all just traditional elected representatives, which are, you know, doing the best they can. And then one of them is this digital democracy representative. And so when they go around the room and say, hey, can't, uh, representatives, how do you vote on this thing? They go, yay, nay, yay, 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 nay. And then the digital democracy person, they might hold their phone up to the microphone and push a button on their phone and a voice will come out of their phone that says, the people of District 7 vote yay. And so now all of a sudden, the, the representatives mm-hmm. themselves, all they are is a literal button pusher. They push the button, <laughs> and that translates their their jurisdiction's uh, majority opinion on this issue. And the point is just make it really, really easy for, for this type of thing to happen. So we did a lot of work on, on moving that forward in the last few years. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Like it, it's 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 a really good way to actually get to t- t- test it in practice. Um, 
Impressive. So it's um. I just want to go back to that because you mentioned uh, the polarization, and we have quite a different the political system in Sweden, where we have a parliament and we have eight parties. So right now we have a very tricky parliament situation, parliamental situation, which is quite unstable. But the the the, the left side is uh, ruling, but on minority. But the right side is uh, getting their budget through. And it's sing- only one single uh, mandate, and it's enough that one person is sick that day that the other side would win. Um, wow. So I'm just wondering then, like, if you have, for example, then if if um, uh, because what do they need to do then over the course of a four year period, they need to form coalitions to agree on how you'd vote. So actually, you can you know create some predictability. But if you have a system where people you know they change it changes fluidly from 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 day to day, and maybe it's a Depending on what was written in the news one day, so how do you see, how do you see this? Um, yeah, <laughs> any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, so this is, yeah, is this concept more stable? And of course, people want stability. I mean, of course, it goes without saying. People depend, you know, we all depend on some stability. And so, I certainly want to want to be a part of increasing stability in, in our government structure and our communities. And so. I think that's definitely a, a major fear of these types of things. It's a it's a first impression that a lot of people get. I mean, even the name there, liquid democracy, mm-hmm. suggests that it's not solid, right? It, it might slip right through your fingers. And so I, that's something that I've become really cognizant as I've been talking about these these concepts with thousands of people over the last few years. Is that a lot of people actually get kind of a a bad impression or they a mistaken impression from depending on the label on it. I think of a, a Slightly better way to think about it is like the systems we have right now, like you're talking about, they're this like tug of war, often between just two camps because of um, there's this theory in political science called Diverger's Law, which says like everything kind of devolves down to just two camps mm-hmm. in order to uh, like you're wasting your vote if you're not in one of the major two camps, basically, is the idea. Okay. But what ends up happening is it's like imagine that we're as a country, we're all like driving the car and for half the drive, we're going to give it to somebody holding the left side of the wheel. So they're going to zoom the steering wheel to the left. And then two years later, four years later, some amount of time later, we hold an election and we say, oh, you guys are bad drivers. Now we're going to give it to the other side. They're going to zoom the steering wheel to the right. And so we have this like crazy zigzag. So I'm not exactly sure that's all that stable either. Mm. Um, So I think it's my, my intuition is that, it could, it's one of these, it's like a decentralized stability type of thing. It's like, it's like with markets, like markets are lots of individual actors pricing things and like your bakers responding to, oh, people want more of this. And so they start making more of it. Mm. And it has this crazy effect where it, it can take a little while to catch up, but then it can um, be incredibly well-tuned to what everybody wants and needs. And, but of course there are market crashes, especially depending on how much people mm. mess with the system can lead to even more market crashes when you like inflate things. So I don't know. I don't think there's any like silver bullet or perfect mm. answer like that. I mean, I, I sort of, am rem- it's reminiscent of the Winston Churchill quote. It's like democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried from time to time. So I think, and this sort of gets to the earlier point about like, wouldn't it be great if we had some small scale experiments where we can see how this works in practice? And then over time, if it's compelling, mm-hmm. more and more people can, can adopt it and can organically grow only to the extent that it's delivering, that people are happy with it. And that's how you so learn. You try to force it all at once, top down. And that's how you learn to fine tune it over time as well, right? Exactly. It's, exactly. Like a, it's like maybe like a regulated market, like the market works, but some of, some of it needs to be regulated. <laughs> Completely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, different systems work better than others. And yeah, so that's that's the approach that I personally yeah. have been trying to take is like allow lots of experiments to bloom so that people can see what does work well, what doesn't work mm-hmm. all that well. And like each candidate, I was saying before, there have been like a dozen candidates that have run for office and say, if I get elected, I'll, I'll follow this system. But each candidate has slightly different rules on the, what they say. So like I personally said, I'm going to vote every sing- on every single bill based on the liquid majority. Other people have said like, I'll vote on every single bill as long as it gets at least this threshold of direct votes. Mm. Other people have said, 
I'll always take this into account and I'll always, if I'm going to vote the other way, I'll always supply an answer for why I'm going to vote the other way. Mm -hmm. And so that also provides all sorts of different um, variations on doing this, which I think is a great thing. I mean, the more, Mm -hmm. the more we can learn, the better. Also, you mentioned like the maybe also like a good um, uh, compare like comparing thing could be the stock market as well. Like over, typically over time, it's quite stable. Um, there are some fluctuations, but the law of big numbers it, it typically keeps on rising. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Right. And there are crashes, but in the same way, political systems crash and burn too. I mean, every political system in the known history of the world has crashed at some point and the ones that haven't just haven't yet but yeah it's kind of the nature of mm. everything is impermanent mm. so how do you then um how do you keep uh it secure because obviously and i think that a lot, most people maybe uh, don't understand how blockchain works so how do you then um um convince people that it's safe totally yeah that's a really great question um, specifically focused on like the cybersecurity mm-hmm. side of things. Like we were kind of talking about political mm-hmm. dynamics and like implications mm-hmm. and polarization stuff, but just on just logistics of the actual electrons moving around. Um, there are, there are basically, I like to, I like to think of the, the term security when it comes to a democracy is really a few different concepts. So one piece of that is ensuring one person, one vote, making sure that, only actual citizens are the ones being able to cast their vote and each citizen only gets one vote. People aren't able to create thousands of bot accounts and you don't have tro- foreign trolls from international countries fucking with your system. Uh, excuse me for swearing. Um, and so that's that's a whole problem in itself, how you authenticate a system and, and that you make it authenticated. And so we've done a lot of work. That's in many ways actually the hardest problem in the US to solve because we don't have a good digital authentication system. In other countries, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier. So like in Estonia, they all have these USB sticks that are tied for, for each citizen. And in, in France, they have a system called France Connect. In Germany, they have a system where the post office will verify their identities. So that is a whole major piece of the security puzzle. And then separately, there's an issue about making sure that the actual votes are cast as intended and the final tally is the correct tally, that tallies aren't being changed, people's votes aren't being changed. And that's actually not as hard as, as people think it is for some strange reason. Um, it's, uh, it basically comes down to, you just need some sort of verification mechanism and there's lots of verification mechanisms. I mean, our entire financial ecosystem depends on digital infrastructure. Hundreds of billions of dollars are being traded every single day on the stock markets on, on computer infrastructure. Our political, our military infrastructure all uses digital infrastructure. So there, there are all these techniques of like signed messages where you can um, use cryptography to see if a single bit was flipped and in a billion characters, you'd know if a single one was off. Um, so you can make it really, really easy for people to confirm that their vote was cast as intended. Okay. And then the third piece of the puzzle that doesn't get as much focus, but is uniquely difficult. Those first two things are things that are already being addressed in lots of other markets. So like if you're signing up for your for your financial trading app, they wanna make sure you are who you say you are, or you're using your credit card, they wanna make sure you are who you say you are, preventing fraud, and they wanna make sure you're not double spending or money's not going. Mm. So those, those problems have already been very well studied for 40 years, for many decades. The hard part when it comes to voting is expectations of privacy. This is the really unusual piece of the voting puzzle that isn't the same for using your credit card is when we vote in our standard elections, we have this expectation that nobody else will see how we vote, including the government. The government's not supposed to see how we vote. Like we're the UN defines a free and fair election Depend is a quick need requires a secret ballot, and you don't have a free and fair election if you don't have a secret ballot because very simple things like people just feel a lot of social pressure to you can have all sorts of coercion coming into play, and so that is a surprisingly somewhat difficult problem. Um, how you can 
how you can communicate your intent while still keeping it private. The good news is that um, these brilliant cryptographers have already solved that problem. They actually solved it back in 2001. There were some other solutions even earlier, but they weren't fast enough. But they came up with these really powerful solutions um, using these things called cryptographic shuffles and these things called zero knowledge proofs, which are highly technical. But the basic idea is it's the digital equivalent of you can put all the votes into a hat. You know, you, uh, it's like you're going to cast a vote. And so you put your vote on a piece of paper and then you seal it inside of an envelope. And that, so that's like encrypting your vote. And then you sign your name on the outside of the envelope. So when you send it in, they can see that it came from you. It's like, be sure it's only from registered voters and only one per voter. And it's still encrypted. And then when you have this giant pile of a million encrypted votes, you can actually mix them all up and mm. shuffle them all up. And this gets into this idea of what's called a mixnet, which is this other mm. technology that's um, it's a fascinating technology. It's highly technical. Mm. And then after all the votes have been mixed up, they've all been mixed up in the hat, then you can open them all up and you, you already removed the names when you got them in there. Mm. Um, and then you can open them all up and everybody can count the votes and you can leave a little doodle in the corner of your vote so you can find yours and you can be sure that your vote is in the final tally. And so it gets a little technical, but this is actually what I, my, me and my team have been working on for the last two years now since the start of the pandemic, um, proving how you can do secure internet voting, even just in normal electoral votes as well. Um, so we've made this system now that um, has been used in a bunch of pilots throughout the U.S. and a bunch of states. All sorts of uh, mm -hmm. government officials have been trying, have been working with it, and to to just make the normal voting problem much easier, much faster, and actually much more trustworthy. One of the problems with our paper elections, I don't think this is a huge problem, but you can see that the effect it's having on the U.S. is a lot of people don't trust the results. Um, the current system relies on. You send your votes into the central counting authority, they tally them all up and they report the results. And if you're just a regular voter, you have no way to verify that your vote's actually correct or what the final tally is. I'm not personally alleging that there's wide scale fraud, but there's a lot of people out in the US that are. And so the system that we've built actually completely addresses this problem and allows you to verify personally as an individual that the final tally is correct. Mm. So it's there's a really interesting PR on this issue where a lot of people think computers are less trustworthy. And if you go about it in a kind of naive way, like you try to use Google Forms to conduct your vote, then people can make lots of multiple accounts. But if you go about it in a slightly more sophisticated way, you can use the same technologies mm -hmm. that were developed to secure nuclear weapons and the stock market and all our mm -hmm. core infrastructure. And then you can actually get far more assurance that the, the thing is accurate. It, it becomes millions of times more costly to disrupt compared to our current paper mm -hmm. infrastructure. I know that was a lot of technical mm -hmm. information. I'm sorry for talking it was a, I think it was a super good answer and a very uh, pedagogical. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but that makes sense. Um, so when you're saying that you're proving, like, are you having people to trying to hack the system to see that it's possible, that it's not possible? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, in a bunch of different ways. So a number we're working with a number of academics, all the leading university researcher professors, um, and they are a very skeptical bunch by nature. And they have been presented other proposals for digital voting infrastructure, and they've found lots of flaws in those. So the default is like um, assume it's broken until we've like thoroughly, thoroughly vetted and inspected the thing. And then we've also been running a number of pilots, especially in the Western part of the US. And then we're also working with um, uh, these people that are accredited to inspect nuclear facilities, like nuclear power plant inspectors. Um, we've hired them to inspect all of our software as well, which is a weird thing for me personally, because I, I wrote a good amount of the code and now everybody's like, doing these deep dives in it, which feels <laughs> a tiny bit invasive and makes me very self-conscious, but so far it's going all right, slowly but surely. Yeah. So, oh, well. yeah, it's a process. Yeah. And the cool, the other great thing about this um, is that the entire system is intentionally opt-in. It's not being forced on anyone. If anybody doesn't feel comfortable with it, don't vote for it, don't use it, don't, especially like we're, we're making the CIV system, the Secure Net Voting System, 
for normal elections as an addition to voting in person and voting by mail, just in normal representative elections. And it it's not forced on anyone, only if you are excited about it, it's much faster, it's much cheaper, it's much easier, you can verify your vote. But if you don't feel comfortable with it, keep using your traditional system, more power to you. And so that's sort of the approach. It's like, we wanna make something that's a lot better, but that people feel they personally choose to to find more compelling. So, so far it's going well. So um, some other like, um, um, how do you say it? Um, thoughts or, um, so, I mean, with new, uh, uh, every, every time we get a new technology, they're into an ecosystem, then we, obviously things happen in the society and we maybe don't know is the trends. Like social media has led, has made influencers become a thing um, who are kind of having the same power as a journalist. Um, so do you see that this could um, lead to political influencers who could possibly even do this as a living to actually dive into topics that they care about and be supported by patrons or subscribers who, who whoever want to support them? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, exactly like you said, it's like we're kind of already organically doing this. So like when somebody runs for office in America, at least, they'll go to all the major communities and they'll get like the the religious leaders to try to endorse them and they'll get like the local community leaders endorse them. And they might get some like celebrities to try to endorse them. And so there's already this very informal influencer network, if you will. And the idea, the problem that I see is like the issues are extremely important, like responding to the different problems that we're facing, getting the the most effective response It doesn't have horrible unintended consequences and and correctly addresses the issue. Very, very important. The problem is that as citizens, we can only like officially legally express our view by voting for people. So there's this horrible indirection, this like, like all this wasted energy in my mind where I might feel that X, Y, or Z is the right policy for something And my only choice to express that is this deeply flawed candidate. And so I think we have a huge amount of waste in our political system where we're like obsessed with their smile and what their family looks like. And all like people, all these politicians, unfortunately, they need to, I don't blame them as individuals. I blame the system as a whole, but it forces them to be marketed as if they're like, quote, the latest flavor of Coca-Cola or whatever it is. Whereas in the real world, like you talk about, you're like, I talk to my grandparents, I talk to my friends, I talk to these, like, these are the people I trust. And so I would like to create, I would like to help us get to a world where that is how our communities, it can just be much more natural and organic, where it's like, these are the normal trusted members of our community. We don't have these like, right, right now we have this like two class system where we have like a tiny number of politicians and then everybody else. And it's like practically like a million to one ratio. And it's just, it, it's, uh, that system, you know, just historically that system was designed for a much smaller world and a much smaller population and our, our population, the world has grown by orders of magnitude compared to the time when these systems were developed. And so I also just think of it, it's like a, it's like a scale problem and a size problem where nowadays there's just a big disconnect between elected representatives and their individual constituents. And so just bringing that back down to a mm. far more humane level, I personally think could be a really, really great thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and another saying um, is that um, a country can be evaluated based on how well they take care of their minorities. Um, right. So how do you see- um, fortunate. Sorry? <laughs> Or the least fortunate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so how do you see um, liquid democracy yeah, impacting minorities? That's a good question. I don't, again, I don't think that there is like a very simple, obvious answer. Um, I mean, one one analysis that that somebody could look at is like, the when you have an electoral system, this actually goes back to to the ancient world. There is this idea that um, elected representatives is actually 
it's actually because it creates an aristocracy. It creates this elite group. It's this winner take all type of system. And so oftentimes you'll have the legislative body um, not really representative of the population as a whole. Like you can look on very simple demographic questions, like the number of men versus women in the legislative body versus the population mm -hmm. at whole. It's typically not representative at all. I mean, that's a one very simple metric, but you can look at it in other sort of demographic questions. And so this gets into this whole idea of proportional representative systems. And so there's a number of ways in which you can um, tweak the rules of your, of your representative system to create more proportional representation so that minority groups have more of a seat at the table. And so a liquid democratic model is does fall under the category of proportional representation. And so I certainly, I, I mean, my personal view is I think everybody ought to have a seat at the table. Everybody's voice ought to be at the very least included. Um, the nature of majoritarian democracy does mean that, you know, you, you have 51% that want something that on whatever particular policy and if your rule is it requires 51% to sign off on it, well, then that might mean that 49% of people are unhappy with that outcome. Mm -hmm. And so some people say, well, actually, maybe we need a supermajority. Maybe we need two thirds in order to, to sign off on something or not. I don't personally have a very strong view on that question. I think I, I personally would like to see lots of different systems out in the world and be able to evaluate the outcomes, mm -hmm. be able to see what, mm -hmm. what works better and worse. I don't think there's a silver, a single right answer. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. I mean, I, I think right now, you know, we say we live in a representative system, but I think we actually a more appropriate name would be we live in a misrepresentative system. Mm. It does its best to represent people, but it doesn't really actually represent the majority or the, the, the whole of the population all that well. And so I think we could improve the representativeness mm which I believe inherently ought to help minorities. And with all that said, it's still really important to have protections, like fundamental protections against um, like core, core liberties being abridged. I mean, that, that's the very American way of looking at things. I don't know. I, I, it's, I don't necessarily feel like I can go around and tell other countries how they ought to be running their system. I just know what kind of world I personally want to live in. Yeah. So. And then, I think what you're saying um, about the, the misrepresentative system, I think that, like, um, an example, uh, so because we have our eight parties in Sweden, they obviously have to agree and then um, on uh, each other in compromise, and then that could actually lead to the fact that one party gets, you know, their kind of um, heart uh, matter through, but actually 75% is against it. <laughs> so right. in a liquid democracy system, then obviously it would be the 75% that would vote against it. <laughs> um, right. Right. In theory, there, you could look, there's a certain way where you could look at it, where you could imagine that, like you're talking about, any one candidate, they have their slate of their preferred issues. I feel we should do this on education, we should do this on taxes, and we should do this on foreign policy, and, and so on. And so when I look at any one candidate, it's extremely rare that I agree with them on every single yeah, exactly. policy. I might really, really like their position on a few of them and then just not agree with them on, on some of the other positions. And so they're doing the best they can, but you could imagine that this liquid majority system would mathematically almost like, again, like a market, like a stock market, it would almost automatically find what is the most popular position on every single issue. And so it becomes impossible to compete against. It's just, it's just the math is such that Whatever is the most popular position on every single issue, it it gets closer and closer to or it just automatically discovers. I mean, automatically makes it kind of uh, shortens the time span. We'll see how long it takes. But it seems like my imagination is that 20 years from now, it would be really challenging for a traditional elected representative candidate to say, I can do a better job representing these 100,000 people than the 100,000 people can do themselves. And the thing is, like, mm -hmm. we still need leadership. So that person, if they're mm -hmm. stepping up, they're saying, you know, I'm I'm sick and tired of seeing our communities face these problems. Mm -hmm. I want to put my hat in the ring and, and do what I can for a community. That's still a wonderful thing. I mean, we need more of that. 
And so within the liquid democracy, people can still delegate to that person on all the issues where they have a really forward thinking, strong leadership position. Mm. And you're just not, you're just not stuck with them on all the other positions where you might disagree with them. Mm. I guess it's, um, and even if a country would not implement the system, it could be a good way to um, help hold the politicians accountable because if you can show what actually the people think, um, yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's what we were doing a lot of experiments with in 2016 and 17 and the beginning of 18, we basically, I, I had this model at one point called the liquid democracy master plan, which makes it sound a little nefarious, but the basic idea was kind of projecting out 20 years from now. And let's say 20 years from now, our goal is that the country, you know, our, our large democracies, our hundred billion dollar budgets would actually be controlled by such a model. But stepping back before that, we have these elected candidates, these digital RC candidates who say, just for this one seat at a time, I'll use it. And so the threshold is once you have more than 50% of those people in the legislature, well, then you can actually make constitutional amendments and it can control the whole thing in a, in a more institutionalized mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. But even before that, exactly like you're saying, you can do what we call liquid scorecards. So mm-hmm. for every single politician in the entire country, you can see right now, we, we turn it off for now, but for many years, you could see um, on every single legislative issue, how many of their constituents agreed with them directly through their proxy, how many disagreed with them. And then we could break it down into categories. So they get an A plus when it comes to these types of issues, but they get a D when it comes to these types of issues. Mm-hmm. And then we would also rank them. Like, so we in America, we have the Republicans and the Democrats. So we'd rank all the Republicans against each other and all the Democrats against each other to try to encourage them to break out of strict party mm-hmm. thinking. Like, are they a better Republican than the average Republican? Are they a better Democrat <laughs> than the average Democrat at representing their constituents? So we graded them on a curve, which mm-hmm. is kind of a mm-hmm. fun way to look at it. So yeah, I mean, that we, we, we've been making progress in that dimension. We turn it all off mm-hmm. for now because mm-hmm. we want to improve our, um, our sign-up systems, mm-hmm. our, um, verifying people's identities stuff a lot better but we'll soon we'll turn it back on again super cool with all the possibilities so that's right it's some future gazing then into the uh, utopian liquid democracy world how in your like how do you envision it um if you can dream (laughs) yeah well so uh just to just for expectation setting i definitely don't want to promise utopia um, I don't I, know, I, do you I, know I where the term utopia comes from? Uh, actually, no. <laughs> it's from this famous book. I think it's Thomas mm. More, and mm. it was from like the, like mm. six hundred years ago. But utopia, it's Greek for mm. no place. It's the place that doesn't exist. Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe I should yeah. stop using that term. <laughs> that. No, no, it's a great term. No, it's an amazing term. But the word itself means the place that it's like this idealized place that gotcha. never exists. Yeah, yeah. But anyway. Yeah, but I, I did say right. utopian liquid democracy place. So it's not right, that. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I think about it in my mind as part of the evolution of free humans working together to create a free society. And it's again, it's part of this evolution. So we have the ancient... 2,000-year-old democracy and like ancient Athens. That's just one city at a time. It was restricted to like land holding males, which of course isn't representative at all. But that I think of as democracy version one, 1.0. And now we have the version that we live in right now, this like industrial age democracy that came about, it really grew out of the like French and American Revolution period. And then post-World War II, especially it spread all over the world with our electoral representative democracy. We elect this leader and they go off to the capital to represent their community. And so that's democracy version two. And it's an improvement because it, it scales better. And now in the 21st century with our internet age, with our, our information age, we have the possibility to do this decentralized representative model, personalized representative model, where we could, you can pick your own representatives. You can pick them on topic by topic. You can represent yourself when you want. You can override them when you want. You can replace them if they're if they're no longer doing a good job. Turns out they they didn't live up to their promise. And so I think of this as democracy version three. But it's not the end of the road either. There can be democracy version four and five and six. And so there's some mm. even further future ideas <laughs> out there. There's this idea that's somewhat popular among futurists called futarchy, 
which is based on this whole idea of prediction markets, which is kind of interesting. There's these other ideas about sortition, um, what's called deliberative democracy, where you pick like a random jury to consider a, a ballot issue and they get have experts come and get presented to them. There's, I don't know how widespread this is or just because of a bubble because of where I live, but occasionally I hear a lot of talk about our, why won't our benevolent AI overlord just make all of our decisions for us? I'm not in favor of that idea at all, but there's a lot of chatter around that. What's interesting about the liquid democracy model is it's it's a very inclusive sort of system. It actually allows you as an individual to say, I really like this prediction market-based democratic system, or I really like the sortition-based democratic system, or I really like the AI that tries to guess my interest. And so you can personally delegate to somebody else can set up a, an AI that tries to predict what you want, and you can delegate to it. Or somebody else can set up a prediction market that predicts what you want, and you can delegate to it. And so this is the foundation for a whole new um, cornucopia of democratic possibilities that could be drastically more effective than what we have right now. So I, yeah, I think of it as like an inflection point, but by no means the the end of the road. I mean, I I hope it's an ongoing, it's a debate that people have been having for many thousands of years. How do we live in a safe society? And I hope it will continue. So yeah, continuous iteration then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for joining the show today. It's uh, been super fascinating. Um, keep up the amazing work, <laughs> what that you're doing. <laughs> Likewise, and I didn't mention this, but I love the name of your show. Unbox oh, thank your you. Rooms. Yeah, I really like it. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> That's it for today. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And if you want to read up more about the guest, then you can go to the show notes to get all of the links. And also, if you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest episode. Thank you for today. See you in the next episode. <laughs>